Okay, so we are in uh, a series. This is part two of my series, Navigating Through the Storm. 2021 will mark the year of the cancel culture movement being weaponized and empowered through a frightening unity between big government and big business. Its goal will be to silence all who would speak contrary to its ideologies and values. In the words of former U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler, quote, disagree and you will be canceled. And not just your social media account, but your job, your family, your educational opportunities, even your God-given rights. Only those who meet their ideological purity test can claim moral superiority and retain their voice, unquote. When big government joins with big business to silence and oppress people, it becomes an unconstitutional, hellish beast. In the end, it will destroy our nation and murder many of its people. So who will stand against this beastly agenda? Can the citizen withstand it? No. Can the family withstand it? No. The only entity that can stand between an immoral, mega-fiendish system and the people is the ecclesia. The church, it's the only entity large enough to get in between the people and the state or what has become a beast system. And with Yeshua as our head, the head of the ecclesia, the church, and all of heaven standing behind us, we can overcome this tyranny, even in its ugliest forms and greatest of powers. We've done this before. With heaven's help, we shall do it again. However, it will take great courage, unity, patience, wisdom, faith, and action. Now's the time to start. Now's the time to begin to unite and to pray and to seek God for strategies to slay the beast of tyranny with its weaponized cancer, sorry, it is cancer, though, cancel culture movement. I can say the cancer culture movement, closely related. Okay. As Yeshua clearly stated, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the advance of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Our mandate is to advance the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray. They are our Father. And in the midst of that prayer, it says, Thy kingdom come. Whose kingdom? God's kingdom. His rule and reign. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On the earth. Just as it is in heaven. So how do we advance the kingdom of Messiah on earth as it is in heaven? 
How do we do that? What are the challenges and the obstacles? How do we overcome them? We'll address that or those questions today in our, in our teaching. But let me recap. Last week, we addressed the importance of unity and how to foster it. Unity within the local church and then unity between the local churches. It's very important for us to unite. We have to unite if we're going to get through uh, the current crisis that we face. Unity always begins with love. While truth undergirds and establishes it. It's got to flow from love. It's birthed in love. It's bathed in love. And then it is established by truth. 1 Corinthians 13.8 states, Love never fails. Never. It always wins out. It goes on to say, Love is patient. Love can wait. Love can, can, can catch the heart of God and trust Him in spite of things spiraling out of control. It has this unique ability to wait out the storm. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag and it's not arrogant. And it doesn't act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not about what it can get. It's about what's right for the people, what's right for the community. It is not provoked. Love is not provoked. A lot of translations will put in the word easily. It is not easily provoked, right? When you love, you can endure a lot. If your love is shallow, if you're short in the area of love, you'll find yourself being easily offended. But those who have a, a very mature and cultivated um, love in their hearts and their lives, really hard to offend them. Love gives out a lot of free passes. Love is very tolerant. Love is very understanding. It's not easily provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Isn't that something when you think about that? Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. When you were wronged by someone whom you really love, you'll find yourself not taking that account. You're able to just basically say, you know what? It's all right. This person's upset with me. They've wronged me, but I love them. I love them enough to forgive them. I value them and their relationship enough I'm not going to let that go anywhere. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. And the nature of love is, is very positive, very optimistic in a very real way. It says to, to the person who may be struggling, I believe in you. It says to the person who has failed in some area, that doesn't define you. I know you're a good person. I still believe in you. I'm going to give you another chance. Yeah, the nature of love is that it believes the best about people. It believes the best in terms of outcomes. It hopes all things. 
against all odds, it has great hope. And then finally, it endures all things. People that love a lot can put up with a lot. People that love little need to be careful with them. They'll lash out because they're short on love. All of us need to cultivate the love of God so we can be more like Him. Doesn't mean you won't be provoked. Doesn't mean you won't, you know, lash out. But it does mean you'll do that less and less as you grow more and more in terms of what it means to love. God reveals Himself first and foremost as love. Exodus 34, 5 through 6. This is God revealing himself to Moses. This is the revelation of his name, his name Yahweh. This is the revelation, the meaning of his name. It says, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The very first revelation of God was this. The very first thing he wanted to get across to people was this. I'm full of love. I'm very compassionate. Full of loving kindness. Full of grace. That's who I am. You can come to me. I'm approachable. I understand. I'm slow to anger. You gotta do, you gotta do a lot for a long, long time to, to, you know, to get me angry. It's okay to be angry. But that should come after a very, very long time of enduring a lot of offenses. God says, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in loving kindness. It just brims, overflows in who I am. And then finally, truth. Truth is at the end, not the beginning. He says, I want you to know that I'm your loving father who is for you and not against you. Truth is at the very end of that. Love comes first, and then truth, and it comes last. Truth is not to precede love. In fact, truth should come through love, being bathed in love, because if it doesn't, the truth will hurt people. The truth will alienate people. And the Father isn't about hurting or alienating people. It's about gathering and healing people. So we want to cultivate and foster the love of God in our hearts. And then out of that love and compassion, share the truth in bite-sized pieces so that we gather and bring healing rather than alienating people. Again, the purpose of truth is to liberate people, not berate people. I'll give you an example. So I go to this Messianic church, Don and I, back in the late, late um, 80s. It's about 1987 that we started getting involved in the Messianic movement. We went to our first Messianic synagogue, and uh, we'd already been involved in, in uh, Messianic Judaism for quite some time, but we hadn't, we hadn't really got plugged into a local Messianic community. So we were uh, looking at a particular community, and, and I went there, and so I'm in there in this Messianic community. And, you know, typically in Messianic communities, we're all about truth, right? Truth, truth, truth. And we tend to use it as a battering ram. We kind of miss this idea that love comes first. 
And we use the truth just to kind of like, you know, beat up on each other. It's the craziest thing. So we're in this congregation. It's our first time there, first time visitors. I'm standing there just trying to observe things, trying to find the rhythm of what this community is all about. And so I'm standing there. They have that part of the service where, you know, you turn around and greet each other. So I'm standing there and they said, okay, you know, have a few minutes, turn around, welcome someone here today. So we're standing there. This lady turns around. She goes, sticks out her hand. I grab her hand and she says to me, eyeball to eyeball. She goes, my God is not an Easter bunny. <sighs> what? I'm thinking, did I just hear that? I'm a first-time visitor. I don't even know who this person is. And what is she saying to me? My God is not an Easter bunny. What is she trying to communicate? She had some truth. And she wanted to give me the truth. And she didn't even know me. I guarantee you she didn't love me. But she wanted to give me the truth. Now, praise God. Praise God. She was a woman. Because I have a personal value not to punch women. Had it been a guy, I don't know what I would have done, but I thought that is just crazy, Bill, right? So I'm thinking, you need to work on some love. Get the love train going first. You know, the caboose is the truth part of that train. You know, get the love engine going first. So give you another example of that too. This other guy, and he happened to be part of the same congregation. He was always, always, always trying to figure out where you were weak in the area of a particular truth. And then he would hound you on that just all the time. I mean, every time I saw him after a while, when I'd see him, I would just go the other way. I didn't want to talk to him because I knew he was just going to beat up on me with the truth. It's the craziest thing. I watched him do that with other people. And let me tell you, he was pretty, he's, he's kind of a ornery, kind of mean-spirited type person too. It was it was horrible, horrible. Yeah, so I watched that go on for, you know, a year or two. I thought, man, that is unbelievable. Yeah, I saw him about 15, 20 years later. We had left, went to another congregation, and uh, I saw him probably 15, 20 years later at a conference, Messianic conference. He was in a wheelchair. He was in a wheelchair. And uh, he saw me, he was in his wheelchair, and he saw me, and when he saw me, he like waved. He was like at the back, you know. He like waves, and he starts to roll his wheelchair towards me. He's waving. I'm thinking, oh, man, you know, where's the exit, you know? Thinking, I know, I remember that. I remember that, you know? Yeah, so he made his way up, and he goes, uh, Mark, Mark. He goes, hey, hey, hey I, I've got to talk to you. You got a minute? He said, I have to talk to you. I said, sure, what's up? And he says, uh, I want to let you know, I was in a really bad accident. I almost died. I was in the hospital for months, and, uh, and I'll, I'll never walk again. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm in this wheelchair, you know, until I die. And he says, but I, I, just, I just have to, to find you and tell you I'm really sorry about the way I treated you because I'm embarrassed by it. I look back on that. I think to myself, what was I doing? Because I was so wrong. The Lord showed me I was so wrong. But he spared my life. I'm alive, and I'm so grateful. And my job now, my job is I'm going around, I'm trying to find everyone that I knew way back then, just like you, trying to find everyone to tell them I'm sorry for the way I treated them and how I used truth as a battering ram. I get it now. God showed me. I'm called to love people. It's all about loving people. 
and then giving truth that His direction bathed in love so that people can accept it rather than be berated by it. I never forgot that. I thought, wow, isn't that something? That's amazing. So we had a great reconnection and really had a basis for friendship that we never had prior to that. It was an amazing thing. So I just want to encourage all of us to to always remember that love is the first and foremost thing that God reveals himself as. He is love. And it's through that he brings truth to us in ways that doesn't alienate us, but in ways that actually draws us into him. And we got to learn to do the same thing. We can't make the mistakes of just judging people and condemning people. We got to make sure that we're loving people and helping people with the truth. Okay, let me just give one other thing to one other comment I want to make too. Um, forgiveness is a command. We're commanded to forgive one another. So when we're offended, we're commanded to forgive. And if we can't get over that offense and we can't quite get our hearts at peace, then we really owe it to go to that person that's offended us and and work through that. Um, We're required to forgive one another. Now, reconciliation is different than forgiveness. You know, reconciliation isn't always commanded in the Scriptures. It's a goal. We want to be reconciled, but forgiveness comes first, okay? But let me give an example of, of why reconciliation sometimes is impossible. You know, if, 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 if someone in a church is abusing the children and they work in the children's ministry and they, you know, come to a place of great conviction and confession and repentance, um, and, and so forth, you know, there will come uh, the discipline that's needed and also the involvement of the authorities in that and so forth. The question is this, can they be forgiven? Of course they can. Are people who were victimized required to forgive them? Yes, of course they are. But are they required to be reconciled? No, not at all. In fact, that probably won't take place until the age to come. Yeah, we understand those are kind of the exceptions to the rule. But if you can forgive whoever it is that offended you and the relationship's still kind of rocky, man, pray through that. Because if you can get that reconciled, that's the ideal. That's what we're fighting for. That's what brings unity in a body. So I want to encourage us that as we offend each other, and we will from time to time, pray Forgive them, ask God to heal your heart, and then if the relationship is still not what it should be, man, just look for opportunities to reach out, reconnect, and get that back into a good place. Okay, this week, we're going to transition into warfare. How we win the fight with evil. How do we win the fight against evil, because we're in a war between good and evil. That's what this is all about. This isn't new. It's been going on since the garden, since the fall. The children of the woman have been at war with the children of the serpent. So this war has been going on forever and has an ebb and flow to that. And it's been picking up with intensity over the last couple of years in our country. That's for sure. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6 and work our way down and pick up some principles about how We are to fight and overcome. Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, Finally, after talking about unity and coming together and getting strong in terms of unity, he says, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We got to find our strength in Him. We can only do so much. We're not going to overcome anything in our own strength. We need the strength of the Lord. And if we have the strength of the Lord, it's transformational. It's the very thing that gives us all that we need to stand and resist against all of the outpouring of evil all around us. It's in his strength that we're going to overcome. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's right, the devil, the serpent, Satan. He puts together schemes to take you out. He has plans to take you out. You can't be passive in this war. He's after you. He wants to destroy you. What are you going to do? You're going to get up and run? Paul says you better get up and fight. It's your life. It's your future. Get up and fight. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our war isn't with each other. Our war isn't with people. Our war isn't with other human beings. No, our war is with the spiritual forces that are lying to them, deceiving them, inciting them against us. If we don't take care of the spiritual phenomenon, we're never going to win this battle with those that are against us. How, how do you overcome a person that hates you? By loving them. And in love, they will ultimately become your friend. We've got to understand the dynamics behind the fight. This language that Paul gives us, rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces, wickedness. Th this is the language of what they call geographical um, domain authority. In the spiritual realm, there are spiritual beings that actually have authority and dominion over this fallen world. They have authority to do their work in different geographical locations. They, they actually are lords in this world under Satan. Exodus 12, 12, listen to this. This is amazing when you think about it. God's judging Egypt. Egypt was a very dark, dark uh, culture, dark empire. The pharaohs, they were monarchs, basically. What they put on their, their uh, heads? What was it that they wore on their head? A snake. That was the symbol of Egypt. The snake. Does that, does that make it, is that coincidental when you think of the serpent in the Garden of Eden? Yeah, this is the chief symbol of who Satan is. A serpent. This is the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the rule and reign of Satan through this empire. You can see its culture, its values, and identify it as being absolutely evil. Listen to what God says in Exodus 12, 12. He says, I'm going to go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. 
both man and beast. Listen. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. One of the things that God's going to do is he's going to judge the gods of Egypt. Those are those power bases, those principalities that have authority over geographic locations. These are the fallen gods that had authority to rule and reign. God says, I'm going to judge the gods of Egypt who have basically poisoned and incited Egypt in this evil that they're up to and now how it's turned towards my people. Fallen gods are in rebellion against God and His ways. They are executing a coup d'etat. Satan has a group of angels uh, that have fallen. He has, he has a, a, a huge following in the spirit realm. And he's trying to pull a coup d'etat and overthrow the king of heaven. He wants to usurp the authority of the king of kings. And he wants to rule over all of creation. Spiritual forces of wickedness. These gods want to lead you into idolatry and bondage so that you're crippled and enslaved by it. Once enslaved, you are no longer a threat to the kingdom of darkness. So they work really hard at seducing us. They work really hard at pulling us into a place of idolatry. Because in that idolatry, we'll become ensnared, and then we are useless in terms of advancing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Idolatry, let me just give you a simple definition, okay? There's a lot of nuances that go into this concept. But idolatry is when you put anything before the living God. And so the way you know you're in idolatry is this, that if what you're involved in is causing you to transgress the commandments of God, you're in idolatry. That's idolatry. That's one of the ways that you determine whether or not you're in idolatry. Then, of course, you know, with that idolatry comes a seduction and a deception and a delusion. So that, oh, at a given point, at a given point, you don't even see it as idolatry anymore. In fact, you've already justified it in a way that it's not even idolatry. The power of community. You know what the power of community is? That when you get off the rails, there are those in the community who say, look, you're, you're, you're really getting involved in some idolatry here. See, they're objective enough to see what's going on to help you to understand that you're being deceived. You run alone, you're going to be a victim in the end of this darkness that's a lot smarter than you. You stay plugged into a community, and you have increased your chances of being free from that deception. I mean, just... Tom Cruise, I forget the movie. You with me? Without. With? Without. Okay? So you run with the community, your chances are very high that you are going to be free from the seductions and deceptions of idolatry. Let me give you some examples of idolatry. Mammon, the god of money, this is one of the false gods. This is a power base. This is what so many people have fallen into idolatry with. The God of money. 
The scriptures say, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Never fall for the idol of money. God's our provider. You've got to be careful. When you fall in love with money, you're going to get yourself in all kinds of bad places. And ultimately, that idolatry is going to wipe you out. Sexual immorality. Think about this. This is a huge uh, idol in America today. Look at the pornography in America. Look at the slave sex trade industry, how it's fueled by this pornography. Fornication, sex before your wedding day. Let me say that again. Sex before your wedding day. That's fornication. That's sexual idolatry. Adultery. Sex with a person outside of your covenant marriage. Homosexuality. Sex with a person of your own biological sex. It goes on and on. Substance abuse. Substance abuse will make a mockery of you as you lose your loved ones, as well as God's intended blessings for your life. The devil's a thief. He comes to steal and destroy. You got to guard yourself. These forces of wickedness have been around forever. We're in a war, people. Can't be passive. Wake up. It's your life. Seize the day. Guard your soul. Guard those under your care. We're in a battle. And we can win this. We can overcome. For the Lord in us is stronger than he that is in the world. You can add to these three that I've just listed almost an unlimited list of idolatries. These are what we war against. These are our battles. Not people, but the seductions of these wicked forces in high places. If we are free from idolatry, God can then use us effectively in advancing his kingdom in our world. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Yeah, the weapons of our warfare are not like guns and so forth. When you, when you, when you have to, to overcome spiritual forces, guns don't work. You need the Spirit of God. We need the weapons of God to take down spiritual forces that are seeking to destroy our lives, our families, our communities, our nations. Prayer and faith, that's what moves mountains. Prayer and faith, it's unstoppable in what it can accomplish. Let me give you some ideas about this, some practical aspects of this, and then we'll pick this up next, next week. Daily devotions. Daily devotions. You want to be a good soldier? You want to be an overcomer? You got to get some of these basic things in place. Daily devotions. Prayer, study, worship, and journaling. 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the afternoon. Minimum. Minimum. The offering in the morning was a lamb. The offering in the afternoon was a lamb. Two offerings every day forever. What was it? The morning offering and the afternoon offering the Tamid offerings. 
And the Jewish people learned by that, that that's the prayer times. You want to pray after you've sacrificed the lamb. Because in that sacrifice, there is a cleansing, an atonement. And now is the time to ask God. Because that is a pleasing thing to God, that you humble yourself, confess your sins, get right with Him. That's the time also to pray. So we learn from our ancestors that praying in the morning, the afternoon, is essential to a life that overcomes in this world. So I want to encourage you, 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the afternoon, minimum. Take the Psalms, and what you do with the Psalms is you read five Psalms every day and one proverb every day. This is how it works. You take the, the day of the month times five. So if it's day one, that's one times five is what? Five. So you read Psalms one through five. On day two, that's two times five is 10. You read Psalms six through 10. On day three, three times five is 15. You read Psalms 11 through 15. In doing so, you'll go through the Psalms every month. Proverbs, you read one proverb every day of the month. You'll come through the Psalms and the Proverbs every month. And in that 30 minutes in the morning, you do a couple of the Psalms. In the afternoon, you do the rest of the Psalms and the Proverb. You do that every day. You pray. You worship a little bit. You, you sprinkle that with some prayer and worship and some journaling as God speaks to you through His Word. And you'll see transformation come to your life. You'll see transformation come in your business. You'll see it come in your marriages. You'll see it come in your families. It's an amazing power that takes place and is released when you begin to do that. So I want to encourage you with that. Do that every day. Make a commitment. Step out. Begin to do it. And watch how it will change your life. This is how we war. This is how we overcome. This is how we win the battles that we're up against. It's a spiritual war. And we need to understand that if we want to overcome.